Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, February 17th, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me again today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Big Five trade book publisher HarperCollins and the UAW local representing 200 HC employees have tentatively agreed to a new contract after a strike that began in November. Yeah, big news broke right after we recorded last week. A deal has been struck that could finally end the nearly three-month strike at HarperCollins. Uh, this just about two weeks after the two sides agreed that they would work with a federally appointed mediator. Now, that's the good news. We have a tentative deal, and there is hope that the 200-plus employees that are part of the union can get back to work soon. At the same time, questions still remain about exactly what is in the deal, and of course, the deal still needs to be ratified by the union membership. And while I would assume a vote on that would happen quickly, it was supposed to happen this week, I believe, and could have even happened by the time of this recording. We just don't know what that's going to be. The HarperCollins Union has been on the picket line, as you note, for about three months, since November 10th, three calendar months anyway. And technically, uh, the strike is still on until the deal is ratified. But good news, this could soon be over. According to a joint statement, the new contract includes unspecified increases to the minimum salary. Striking workers will also receive a $1,500 lump sum bonus following ratification. I've seen the statement, Andrew. It's hardly more than 100 words. Do you or does PW have any further details? Unfortunately, no. And I don't think anybody else has any more details. We've been trying to find out more unsuccessfully. Uh, we should all know soon enough, I suppose. But at this moment, no further details. The union Twitter account has been pretty silent. Uh, and there's been an unusual silence across social media as well, uh, which, you know, really is not that unusual. You know, the, it can take time sometimes to work a final deal and do contract form. But yeah, you know, we know that there is a small bonus to workers who have been out of work since November on the picket line. And there's also this agreement to raise entry-level salaries from the $45,000 baseline. But we don't know to where. We don't know if they actually hit their $50,000 target mark that they've been asking for. And I think some of the bigger questions are about other things the union had been asking for, for example, more concrete actions on diversity measures at the publisher. And crucially, the union had wanted more concrete support from non-union workers. As we discussed before, HarperCollins is an open shop. The union is supported by 200 plus employees. I'm not sure what the exact number is, but that's just a small fraction of the company's 4,000 workers, even though a number of many more eligible employees that is non-management actually enjoy protection from the contract that the union might negotiate for. Uh, now, last week, of course, we should go back and, and talk about the fact that Hachette and McMillan raised their starting salaries to $47,500. We spoke last week about what kind of pressure that might put on HarperCollins to settle. The pressure has actually been building throughout the strike. And I think that these raises at Hachette and McMillan are pretty obviously linked to the awareness that the union raised here about entry-level salaries in publishing. And I think entry-level employees across the board really kind of owe the Harper Union a debt of gratitude for their stand here. Uh, that said, whether or not this strike was really worth it for the workers who were on the line is really going to depend on the details of the contract, which I must point out another point of the contract, too, is that the deal will only run through 2025. So, 
the idea of going through this all again in less than three years is daunting. So I'm holding out hope here that the deal is ratified and that the deal's base terms are strong enough that it will satisfy the workers and that the next negotiation will be set up to go smoothly. But we just don't know. You know, I've actually read critics on the labor side lament the union's decision to work with a mediator as suggesting that the union was getting ready to cave in and end the strike. I don't know that that's true at all. And of course, we know from the Harper side, you know, the, the, the Harper's corporation was simply not really negotiating. They were not coming to the table. So you know, this leads me to a couple of conclusions here. I'll just close out quickly. And one is that, you know, again, I think the Harper Union made a bold stand that absolutely had a positive impact across the industry, and they deserve the thanks and admiration of their peers. But for these striking workers who are poised to go back to work and who endured the hardship of being on the picket line these last three months, I really hope they want enough in this new deal to be satisfied. Uh, and look, the next year or so could also be very painful. Let's not forget, too, that HarperCollins as a company announced that there's going to be a 5% labor reduction as it resets after the pandemic boom. Uh, at the same time, the deal was announced. News Corp is also reporting its financial results for the quarter that ended in December 31st of 2022. The, those earnings were down by 52% with profits down by 53%. So we're going to learn a lot more in the coming days, but for now, let's hold out hope that the union has secured the fair contract that it fought for, and if ratified, that it sets the stage for progress and for a smooth negotiation the next time around. Another Big Five publisher, Simon & Schuster, has put the for-sale sign back in the window, Andrew. This comes after a federal judge blocked Big Five publisher and rival Penguin Random House from acquiring SNS. Yeah, no surprise, of course. Uh, but I think it is news for sure that, well, it's back on the market, right? Simon & Schuster... Uh, is back for sale with Reuters reporting that parent company Paramount is working with another financial advisor on this second attempt to sell off uh, the publisher. Uh, Looking for a deal that would reportedly value the company over $2 billion. Now, remember, Penguin Random House had come in with a bid that was just under $2.2 billion for Simon & Schuster. And I think that bid surprised industry observers who had expected bids would be, in fact, under $2 billion. But here's the interesting part of that story in Reuters, and that's that, you know, Paramount is said to be courting private equity over fears that another big five suitor would run into the same issues that Penguin Random has faced. Indeed, my boss, Jim Milia, has reported this very thing that sources have told him that Paramount would not entertain an offer from HarperCollins, for example, their parent company, News Corp, fearing that the deal would run into the same issues that blocked the Penguin Random House purchase. And while the Reuters story said a deal was not necessarily certain or may not happen soon, uh, we also heard from Paramount officials that they are committed to unloading Simon & Schuster, which they view as a non-core asset to their streaming business. What's your own analysis on that reporting, Andrew, particularly that Paramount won't consider a bid from HarperCollins? Yeah, I kind of don't buy it. No question, Judge Florence Pan delivered a harsh verdict on the state of consolidation in the publishing industry, and I could see where that would make Paramount officials skittish. But I'll just point out what the lawyers have been telling me, and that's that Judge Pan is one judge in one circuit. And also, you know, the argument that worked to block Penguin Random House worked primarily because Penguin Random House was already towering over its competition. Uh, The math would simply be much different for HarperCollins than it was for Penguin Random House. And again, I'm not pushing for this. I'm just telling you what the lawyers tell me. And they tell me that a HarperCollins deal would probably not be blocked. 
And it does seem to me that there's a strategy unfolding here to try to bid up the price by sort of leaking that, you know, you won't sell to HarperCollins. It seems to me that when you leak that, you're basically telling HarperCollins that their bid has to be worth the risk, a risk that I believe Paramount is very clearly playing up. And why not? It worked really well because Penguin Random House, with some risk attached to its bid, bid really hot when they came in. Also, you know, the global economy is still really uncertain, right? That's not news. So you have to wonder what the chances of a foreign buyer emerging are here, given the uncertainty globally with the economy. There's some drama, as we talked about, you know, in recent weeks going on in France with Vivendi, for example. But, you know, they certainly may be in the mix. People have been wondering whether a Chinese-backed suitor would emerge, and that possibility has been floated in a number of places. You see what I did there, the Chinese floating? <laughs> but if your best bid by a mile is from News Corp, and you have a very, very detailed roadmap from the Penguin Random House trial about how to get over the line, I think Paramount would take a bid from News Corp. Put it this way, it's a very curious strategy for getting the best price to tell the market that you're definitely selling, but you're not selling to the entities that would probably want you the most or submit the highest bids. So again, my read is that everything up to this point is all part of a strategy to try to get suitors licking their chops again for Simon & Schuster. And I think it starts with placing a story like the one we saw this week in Reuters. This week, Andrew, PW has details on the renaissance of the nation's largest bookstore chain, Barnes & Noble. This is a very different report from the negative stories we were used to hearing from BNN over the last decade. Yeah, my boss, Jim Elliott, with a really good report on Barnes & Noble, uh, who report that sales in 2022 were, quote, very comfortably up over 2018 and 2019, the pre-pandemic years. And this, according to CEO James Daunt. Now, Daunt reports that last year was the best year since Daunt took over the company in late 2019. And of course, that's an achievement that, you know, Daunt himself acknowledged wasn't really that difficult, given that so many of the Barnes and Noble stores were forced to close during the first few years of the pandemic. But again, one thing I'd point out is that we no longer see Barnes and Noble's numbers since the company was taken private. But Don says sales are up. We have reason, every reason to believe him, of course. We hear a lot of good anecdotal things from publishers and from booksellers uh, or book buyers, I should say, about the chain all boosted, I think, by this increase in reading that we saw observed during the pandemic, uh, as well as, of course, trends like, you know, book talk, which have lifted book sales. And of course, Daunt has a proven formula that he executed in the UK, a plan to come in and immediately improve the individual Barnes and Noble stores. And he's done that in many cases. And the chain has drawn a lot of positive coverage in the press for opening new stores, which is a really big deal, as you know, because we're used to, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were reporting often about how many stores Barnes & Noble was closing. Don said he hopes to open about 30 new stores by the end of 2023 uh, and building on a point that we talked about, you know, last week in terms of uh, the MPD book scan tracking uh, population shifts. Don said that Barnes & Noble is even on the lookout for new stores in areas that were once housed stores that were closed by Barnes and Noble, that maybe enough people have moved back to say, you know, North Carolina, where a store in a community that had to close previously might warrant another look. Anyway, there's plenty more in the piece on the PW site, uh, but it certainly is a piece of good news for publishers, given all the uncertainty that the largest chain in the nation, Barnes and Noble, appears to be on the rise again. Final numbers from the Association of American Publishers on book sales for 2022 are now in. 
Yeah, the year-end figures from the AAP, their stat shop program, are in. You can see them on the PW site, and they show largely what we've seen elsewhere and what we expected, a decline overall, all segments of 6.4% in 2022, this off of what was a really historically strong year in 2021. Uh, the AAP reports that sales were down in all publishing categories, including the two trade segments. Sales of adult books fell 6.2%. And sales in children's and YA category dropped 5.7%. The decline in adult book sales was largely due to a significant, I think like a 16% drop in hardcover sales uh, that offset an increase in the sales of trade paperbacks. And again, this point sort of goes to a thing we've also been talking about over the last year or two, and that's the growing proportion of backlist sales, which would be paperback, and declining frontlist sales, which would be hardcover. So uh, more data there on that schism between frontlist and backlist sales. Uh, good news on the digital side, downloadable audio sales rose 7%. Bad news on that side is that ebook sales fell 6%. Ebooks still lead total digital revenues. But again, that margin is closing and closing every year with ebook sales shrinking and digital revenues growing. Uh, in 2022, that gap was, I think, 950 million or so in ebook sales and just under 800 million in digital audio sales. So, digital audio inching ever closer to parity with ebooks. And one other note I'll make about the, the AAP's numbers, and that's returns, which really dipped in the pandemic year, which of course helped publishers. Well, they're on the rise again. Still, they're not anywhere near pre pandemic levels. So, if that trend holds true, publishers are able to get more sell-through, uh, that's going to be a significant boost to publishers in the coming years. Again, you can read more about the AAP's numbers on the PW site, but with these figures, we can now put a bow on 2022, uh, which was a down year, but still well above where we were before COVID. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content... An antitrust lawsuit filed against Google in February by the U.S. Department of Justice and Attorneys General in eight states does not mention either copyright or the news profession. Industry analyst Paul Sweeting, though, explains why the government's decision to make an antitrust example of Google may release the tech company's tight grip on ad spend and give publishers, especially news publishers, a chance at online survival. From the consumer's point of view, well, the biggest impact is you have fewer viable news sources to choose from. And that may seem a bizarre sort of statement to make when you're talking about the World Wide Web, when you're overwhelmed with content, but, you know, a good amount of that content is not being professionally produced. It's being produced without the sort of fact-checking and, and multi-sourcing and verification and credibility that goes along with a professional publishing operation. And so the impact is uh, uh, on consumers is both less credible information and more, <laughs> I don't want to say not credible, but uh, perhaps dubious uh, information available to you. So that's, you, you could argue that, and, and the Justice Department does, that that's a net loss to the society. Ungoogling the news, next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. Thank you.